0: let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started, just to make sure we're ready to concentrate on the word of God, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you in prayer that you are God who is very concerned about the details of our lives, concerned about the things that we bring before you and you desire us to come and bring our prayer requests to you. Father, we thank you for this congregation, for their positive volition, for their desire to know you, to know your word, and to let their thinking be overhauled by divine viewpoint truth. Now, Father, as we continue our study through Genesis, we pray that the lessons that you would have for us to learn, made clear, and that we see how these things uh, impact our thinking and our living. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start off tonight in Lamentations. Lamentations. That's that part of the Bible that's not all dog-eared. Between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter three. Although if any part of it is dog-eared, this might be the chapter. Lamentations chapter three gives us one of those great promises that many of us have heard through the years. Some of us have memorized, and it's the basis for a favorite hymn. Great is Thy faithfulness, and that this promise that I'm referring to is found in Lamentations 3:21-23. This I recall. To mine. Therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now that's a familiar promise, and the trouble with familiar promises sometimes is they they become too familiar, and we get uh we take them for granted, we forget the what's happening around those promises in the context. And the context of the book of Lamentations is that the prophet Jeremiah is grieving over the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. when the, uh, the Babylonians for the third time came into Judah, defeated Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And that was the end of the first temple period. And Jerusalem was laid waste and there were uh, it was a time of just incredible devastation and death and destruction, but the uh, immaculate, beautiful, gorgeous temple to God was destroyed. And so he is expressing his grief over Israel, over Israel's failures to trust God, over the discipline that God has brought upon them. And in the midst of this, he is reminded that God is always faithful. And if we look at the beginning of the chapter, He's just reflecting on the um, what he has seen. In verse 1 he says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin, broken my bones. He has besieged me, surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has Set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. And he goes on and talks about just, just a the grief that he's going through i think sometimes as believers we don't think we should really go through grief or express emotions like we have here in lamentations because that's a sign of not trusting god but here this is lamentations and Jeremiah's trusting god and what by by recognizing what he's going through it drives him to an even greater understanding of god's faithfulness as he thinks through his circumstances thinks through his situation, he's driven to go back to the historical manifestation of God in the history of Israel as, a, as an example to demonstrate that no matter how bad things may get, no matter what may happen, God is continuously faithful to his promise, which is ultimately embedded in the Abrahamic covenant and the promise that God made to Abraham and that God would always be faithful to that promise. Now, for the last seven months, over 23 lessons, we've been going through the Toledote section in Genesis on Jacob, and on, or whether it's the Toledote of Isaac, the focus has been on Jacob. And tonight, what I am doing is reviewing this whole section, driving it home to us. And the more I've thought about what is the major theme that we see in this Toledote, it comes back to divine faithfulness. That God is faithful to that promise that he has made, despite human failures, despite human flaws, despite the fact that, that Jacob just really isn't a very likable guy for much of what we read in the Scripture. We go through this and we think, this guy is not the kind of person I'd want to live next door to me. wouldn't want to do business with him. He's a conniver. He's always trying to get the best of whoever he's uh, dealing with. And yet this is the man, the family, the God he's chosen through whom he's going to bless the whole world. And even in the midst of failures and flaws and people who are just really messed up, I mean, we just get to that whole episode in the chapter dealing with the rape of Dinah and the brothers who go in and just massacre all the people in Shechem. They're not our favorite people. Yet God is. God is always faithful. So this is the dynamic that goes on in our lives when we face problems and difficulties and challenges that seem insurmountable, just like Jeremiah facing the destruction of Jerusalem, which was a historically tragic situation. And he is removed from Jerusalem and is removed from the promised land and yet he is driven to recognize on the basis of everything that's happened that God is faithful. And see, when we come to teaching, one of the reasons I do these summaries is because when they teach Genesis in prep school, those prep school teachers will not necessarily have time to go listen to 300 lessons in Genesis. So I hit these summaries so that they can get a quick understanding of what the basic key doctrines are that need to be taught out of these circumstances. And the same thing is true for us uh, at, a, at a, in a different way of application is so that when we hit problems, we need to be able to think in terms of people and events that are going on in the Scripture that relate to what we're going on. Uh, going, going through in our own lives so that we can then understand the principles and the doctrines that are there to make them, uh, uh make the application. And so that's what I want to do tonight. Let's just review briefly what is going on in the overall structure of Genesis. Genesis has these ten toledotes. These toledotes are the, uh, usually translated, these are the, uh, generations of uh, the first one is the heavens and the earth, the second was Adam, then Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, and now Isaac, and before the night's over, we'll go through chapter 36, uh, 1, and that should be 36, 1 and 36, 9. That's just a typo I just caught. And then, or should, uh, yes, and then Jacob, which goes from 37 seven two to 5026 the whole chapter of 36 is uh, a double on Esau now when I'm we went through this when we studied this the Toledotes are usually translated this is the history of this is the record of this is the generation of the idea is this is what happens to the descendants of so-and-so so we don't have a Toledote of Abraham because we're talking about what happened to the descendants of Terah and when you say what happened to the descendants of Terah it's all about Abraham and so, when we come to what uh, what happened to the descendants of Isaac, it's all about it's all about Jacob, and Jacob has been our subject now from chapter uh, twenty-five, verse nineteen, and which records his birth, down through the end of chapter thirty-five. So that's covered about ten chapters. The foundation for everything after chapter twelve is the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenants summarized in chapter 12, 1 through 3, land, seed, and blessing, which were later expanded into other covenants. But that's the structure, the foundation for everything else in the the Old Testament, so that when Daniel, who is out of the land, taken out of the land in the first deportation from Nebuchadnezzar in 605, when he is praying about going back to the land, the very foundation of his prayer and his understanding of history is the Abrahamic Covenant. God is faithful, and so in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we see that God maintains that faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, and this is not dependent at all on the character, the personality, the morality, the spirituality of these patriarchs. It's dependent upon God and his character, and that is how God deals with us on the basis of who he is, what Christ did on the cross, not on the basis of who we are. Now, as we looked at this structure, I went back and looked at the overview I did at the beginning, just so we could kind of pull some things together. We saw that there's a struggle that goes on in this whole episode between Jacob and Esau. And then in the middle of that, you have another struggle that is going on between the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their pagan neighbors. And then in the midst of that struggle, you have the conflict between Jacob and Laban. And then in the middle of that, you have this conflict that goes on between Rachel and Leah. And so all these conflicts play an important role because it's part of the testing that is going on in Jacob's life, how he's going to handle this. And he's always, at the beginning, he's the mass, massive manipulator. He's the uh, majestic manipulator. He's trying to get his way, always trying to out somebody else. And he's not ever relaxing and trusting in God. We don't see that till after the event that occurs at Peniel on his way back to the land. And then he begins to uh, trust the Lord. But the overall conflict that occurs is Jacob and God. That is why Jacob gets the name uh, Israel. He is the one who prevails with God. He is the wrestler, and that's that. The dynamic going on there at Peniel is God, Jacob's will versus God's will. I know nobody here has a problem with your will versus God's will, but that was Jacob's problem, and and we all go through that until and, and we reach a point in spiritual maturity where. It's not such a battle. I'm still waiting for that point. Uh, I know some of you are past that, but for some of us are still wrestling with our will versus God's will. Let's just think through the key events. There's the birth prophecy back in chapter 25:23, where God says this wrestling that's going on in your womb, Rebekah, is a struggle of these two nations. They're wrestling with each other. Esau and Jacob represent two nations. And they are wrestling with one another in the womb. And this is later on used as a picture of God's sovereign choice in history. We're told in Malachi, and then it's quoted again in Romans 9 that uh, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated and there are those who come along and try to take that as having to do with salvation but if we take it from its context in Genesis 25 we saw that this doesn't have to do with individual selection for salvation the, it has to do with God's sovereign plan in history as to whom he is going to work through in bringing about the blessing and salvation for the entire human race so we start with the birth prophecy which sets the context that there will be this, this rivalry between Esau and Jacob and that forms a major section throughout and, and the backdrop to much of the story in light of that we have Jacob's two deceptions Jacob the heel grabber he's the youngest he's the second one to come out of the womb and he is named Yaakov the uh, heel grabber uh, because he is the one who's trying to supplant That's another translation for Yaakov is the supplanter. He's the one who's trying to get out first, it seems. So he wants what the firstborn was to get. The firstborn being Esau would get the blessing and the birthright. And so Jacob, rather than recognizing God's promise at the beginning that the older Esau would serve the younger, Rather than relaxing in God's promise, he's trying to get it for himself. So he's impatient, he's not waiting on God's plan, God's way, and God's timing. He's like most of us, he's trying to make it happen, rather than let God bring it about. So we see these two deceptions, and the first is when Esau comes in from the field, Esau's the uh, manly man, he's not the girly guy, he's the manly man, and he's out there hunting and and fishing, and he's the outdoorsman. He comes in and he's just exhausted. And he says, What's that red stuff? Give it to me now. And uh, Jacob's been in, in cooking all day, and he's got this delicious smelling lentil soup, and red lentil soup. And he says, Well, I'll trade it for your birthright. Esau says, Whatever, just give me the soup. And he diminishes the value of the the birthright of what is his. And this is picked up in the New Testament as a picture of believers who minimize the significance of our future inheritance. And we do the same thing every time we live today in light of feeding our fleshly passions and just letting the sin nature run away with us rather than living in light of eternity. And that's how the writer of Hebrews uses this illustration in Hebrews chapter 12, that we don't want to be like Esau, who is someone who just goes along with whatever his immediate passions are and makes decisions that are comfortable for right now rather than keeping the right priorities in terms of spiritual values and living each day, making decisions in light of eternity. So that's the first deception is the, um, uh, selling his, the, getting the birthright through selling the uh, pottage. This is where Esau gets his nickname, Edom which means red. And we've already been told that he was ruddy when he was born. So he's the red guy and a red man. And then the second deception skips a chapter to chapter 27 when it's time to get the uh, get the blessing. He's already got the birthright. Now he wants. To, now uh, Jacob wants the blessing, and so in uh, cahoots with his mother, they work up this conspiracy to trick Isaac. Isaac's old now. He doesn't see well, uh, virtually blind, and so what they're going to do is trick him into thinking that it's Esau coming in, uh, with, rather than Jacob, and to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to to Jacob, so that Jacob will have that blessing. So he goes out and, uh, while Esau's out hunting and trying to get some, uh, some game to fix some stew, just what his father loves, uh, Rebecca cooks up something and, uh, some beef or lamb and makes it taste just like it would if it were game. And she is apparently a very good cook. And so she t- has uh, Jacob then disguise himself by putting on some skins over his arms because he wasn't as hairy as, uh, as Esau. So that way when his father felt his arms, he would feel uh, rather uh, hairy and rough, and that would deceive Isaac. And the deception worked, and Isaac gave the uh, blessing to Jacob. The problem with Jacob now is that Esau gets left out and there's not much of a blessing left. This is a legal act. And that's what a lot of people today look at this and go, well, why couldn't he just take it back? Because it was deception. Well, he had to honor what was, what he had already done. And there wasn't any way to reverse it. So we have the birth prophecy, then the two deceptions, and sandwiched in between Genesis 25 and 27, we have uh, Isaac's conflict with the Philistines. And once again, we see that he follows the same pattern of his father. It's funny how uh, sin nature trends tend to get passed on uh, genetically. Uh, Isaac lies about Rebecca; She's not really my wife. She's my sister because she's afraid that somebody's going to steal his wife and kill him. must have been a problem back then or else these folks had a genetic trend towards paranoia. And so he's deceptive. He's trying to solve his problems on his own. He's fearful but God nevertheless protects him, watches over him, because what? God is faithful to the promise. It's the seed promise. The issue is that she can't, even though she's taken into the harem of Abimelech, the uh, king of Gerar, uh, even though she's taken into his uh, harem, nothing can happen to uh, create a problem or threat to the seed. So uh, Abimelech uh, wises up and recognizes what's going on, and sends Isaac away. And Isaac leaves, and then we're told that that uh, God comes along and not only protects him, but prospers him and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with him. Uh, several times as we go through this, we're going to see this reaffirmation of the covenant. Then the next section in Genesis 28 to Genesis 32, a 5 Uh, five chapter section deals with Jacob running for his life. He's going to get a taste of his own uh, own medicine. God's going to discipline him with someone who's just like him. Laban. And Jacob has to run for his life because Esau is bringing threats now that he's stolen both the uh, birthright and the blessing. And so Jacob has to leave the land and he goes north to Padanaram. Aram, the family's uh, home area where the cousins are, where his uncle Laban is, and there he's going to look for a, for a wife. And here we enter into another sub-theme that is so important in this section, and that is separation from the world, because Re- Rebecca recognizes that, that unlike Esau, who's already taken a wife from among the Canaanites, she doesn't want... Uh, Jacob would take a wife from the Canaanites because that will uh, introduce him to all of the uh, all the paganism and polytheism and and fertility cults and everything that 's going on in Canaan, and she's trying to protect him from that, and she doesn 't want to bring a Canaanite wife into the family, the environment of the seed, so she sends him back home and so he's going to get uh, a wife there, Rachel, and Rachel's got this same kind of conniving gene a little bit. We see that with the with the episode with the teraphim, and she is truly Laban's daughter. But before we get to that point, uh, Jacob has to learn to deal with Laban, and Laban is going to uh, one-up Jacob at every turn. And so Jacob arrives, and there he met at the well, probably the same well where his father had met his mother, uh, he runs into Rachel, and he falls in love. He's smitten. And so he goes back, meets the father Laban, who's his uncle, and he works out a deal. I'll work for her for seven years. So he works for seven years. At the end of the seven years, they have a wet wedding, and uh, there's, a, there's a bride switch. Oh, I skipped one point. Before we get there, as he's leaving the land, he goes to Bethel. Very important. Not only did we see God's renewal... Of let me back up God's renewal of the covenant with Isaac in chapter 26 but as Jacob leaves the land he is spending the night at Bethel and there he falls asleep he makes a pillow out of a stone and he falls asleep and God appears to him he sees these angels ascending and descending which has, uh, indicates the, the expression of the blessing of God and at that point he recognizes at that point God appears to him in a theophany and renews the Abrahamic covenant promises him that that he will as he goes out of the land God will protect him God will prosper him God will take care of him and God will bring him back to the land so this becomes a foundational promise for Jacob for the next 20 years we talk about trusting God's promises just as uh, Uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 is reflecting upon the history of God's faithfulness that's grounded in that promise of the Abrahamic covenant. So to Jacob, while he's out of the land and he is being uh, abused by his uncle, he's being taken advantage of by his uncle, his uncle is uh, always uh, getting the best of him, and at times he he didn't have anything. When he left, he didn't have anything more than when he left the land, he didn't have anything more than the shirt on his back. And eventually God is going to prosper him. So this is the focal promise for Jacob while he's out of the land. This is the basis for his faith rest drill, to trust in the promise that God has given him and to learn to relax in that. And it took about 20 years before uh, he grew spiritually, so we see the whole dynamic of spiritual growth taking place there. Then we have the episode of the bride swap in chapter twenty-nine. He works seven years for Rachel, and then uh, she comes at the wedding. Uh, she comes in with a veil. Uh, that night they consummate the marriage, and then the next day wakes up and lo and behold, he didn't get Rachel; he got her older sister Leah. But he is in love with Rachel, so he makes a deal to work for her for seven years. And so he works another seven years for Rachel. And then we see that God provides heirs in chapters 30, verses 1 through 24. Uh, God provides the heirs, and we see the sons that are supplied through Rachel and Leah, through Bilhah and Zilpah, as they... Um, Uh, as the family grows, and these are the progenitors of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then we see this interesting episode as Jacob is uh, being prepared by God to leave the land, and God is now going to prosper him and develop his, his wealth. We had that episode with the spotted sheep and divine guidance. And there we've emphasized that divine guidance takes place by direct revelation. This is such a difficult issue for so many people today, such a challenge because there are uh, too many people who think that somehow the the Holy Spirit is just some kind of inner, inner light, some kind of uh, inner vibration, some sort of liver quiver that as we go through some sort of difficulty in trying to make a decision, we just wait for the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do. And the problem with that, there are many problems with that. Number one, it's not biblical, and we went through a number of passages to show how the apostles went through the decision-making process. But it's a problem for two reasons. Number one, it's a problem because it misunderstands the whole concept of God's will the idea that you can live in the center of God's will in the sense that there's always one and only one thing that God wants you to do. But what we see instead is that there are two categories of God's will. There's God's sovereign will, which is his plan for history. We don't know what it is. We could call it God's secret will, God's uh, decreed will. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We won't know what God has decreed for tomorrow until tomorrow is over with. So you can't ever ask the question, what is God's sovereign will? Because the only way you'll know is after it has taken place. That is what we don't know, know as history. Then we have God's moral and revealed will. And this is exactly what that second part says. It's revealed. It's God saying, this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. The only way we know this is if God reveals it to us. Now, revelation began from God, direct revelation began from God with creation. We had the direct revelation that occurred when God appeared in the garden and talked with Adam and Eve. That's direct revelation. You have nonverbal revelation, what we call general revelation, which takes place with the with the heavens. We see the results of what God has done. We call that um, general revelation or nonverbal revelation, but it doesn't give us specific content. You can't look at the at the heavens and come up with a solution. To the sin problem. You have to have special revelation, general revelation. Ultimately, when, it, when you get, uh, things get very specific, then you have to go through, um, you have to use the revealed will in order to interpret general revelation or nature. So it ultimately always comes down to the revealed will. And if God is no longer revealing himself, in direct or special revelation because the canon's closed and it's been closed since approximately A.D. 95, then we can't ask questions like, God, show me what to do tomorrow because you're asking for specific, special revelation which has ceased. God says, I've given you the rule book. You know, your job now is to take what all the wisdom principles I've given you and your job is to apply them to your circumstance, to your problem, to your situation. I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's for you to do that's the process of spiritual growth and maturation. Those of you who are parents understand that at some point when your children come to you and they say, Well, what should I do? You say, Well, you know, I've trained you, I've taught you. Make a decision. You know, apply what you've learned. And that's the way that God works today in the church age. He's given us the completed canon of Scripture to give us that wisdom framework for making decisions. It's not based on some kind of uh, mysticism. So we looked at that. In the bottom, wait a minute, how did I switch categories there? God's will is either revealed, this is the principle, it's either revealed, in which case it is limited to Scripture today, or or it is unrevealed and relates to his sovereign will. Those are the only two options you've got. And so it is not appropriate. It is appropriate for a person to pray that God would make us aware of all the issues we need to be aware of in a decision-making process and for God to guide and direct us in that process. But it's inappropriate to say, well, God, show me whether to take option A or option B. What we're asking there, and this is another uh, area of problem here, is we're saying, God, I don't want to be responsible for the decisions I make. I want you to make them for me. And the bottom line on that is then when things don't go well, I can blame you, and which is what happens. So God gets blamed for a lot of our own bad decisions. Okay, then the next couple of chapters dealt with people testing. Families are hard to deal with. Anybody ever run into that? Families are hard to deal with. And and Jacob's got just a wonderful family. He's got an uncle who's always trying to take advantage of him. He's got a brother who wants to kill him. He he's got wives that are in competition with one another and he's got children that that are just lovely. So here he has to deal with all this family. So obviously an area of his spiritual life that needed uh, needed work was in the area of people testing. God is always going to test us in the area where we are least likely to trust Him. If you don't have a problem with uh, with how you handle money, then God may not ever give you money. He says, "Yeah, I know you'll do the right thing with it, so why should I give it to you? I'm going to give it to somebody else that where it's going to be a test for them. God may not give you certain crises in health because He knows that 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 wouldn't really test you spiritually. Some of you may have health tests, and that's because that's the area that that's a real problem for you. Whatever it is, some of you may have problems with security, and so that's the area where God is really going to test you. You just really like to have everything nice and secure and stable, and things around you just aren't that way because that's where you're out there on the edge spiritually and have to trust God. So... Jacob is being tested by the people in his life, and he's tested first of all by Laban, and finally he has to learn to trust God and follow God's uh, guidance. This is in chapter thirty-one when he is leaving the land. He has got to recognize who Laban is and and what Laban's uh, strengths and weaknesses are, and he's going to trust God, and he is fearful. But he has a promise from God who appeared to him in Genesis 31-3 and told him to return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I'll be with you. And he had to decide how he was going to apply that, and we saw how he was wise in bringing Rachel and Leah to him at a time when Laban and their brothers were gone, and he sat down and had a family council with them and decided how they were going to go about uh, leaving, and they left, and uh, they got away. they got about a 10-day head start, and Laban finally uh, caught up with them, and then they had their uh, confrontation. And they reached a reconciliation, but it was a reconciliation where they agreed to disagree, and they went their separate ways. And then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God, because he is recognizing that it is God who protected him through all those 20 years, Outside of the land, in the presence with Laban and everything that was going on, God prospered him. God fulfilled that promise that he had made to him back in chapter 28 with at Bethel that he would prosper him and take care of him and bring him back to the land. So he comes into the land, and in the land he uh, meets, as he's entering into the land, he meets this man that we discover later is the angel of God, and wrestles with him all night. And it is here that Jacob begins to realize uh, his spiritual destiny, and he rests in God's provision. In chapter 32, as he's coming back to the land, he's got to face up to Esau. Last time he saw Esau, Esau was breathing uh, threats of murder, and so he's fearful. And when he's headed back in Genesis 32, 7, we're told that he was very much afraid and distressed. And and that uh, impacted how he sent everybody else ahead and he hung uh, hung toward the back. And then that night, this man appears to him and he wrestles with the angel all night, which is a picture of the wrestling that has been going on in his life spiritually. And eventually he prevails, uh, not in the sense that he overcomes the angel, but that he... Uh, is able to call upon the angel who he recognizes as God to bless him, and for the first time now, God gives him the blessing. Earlier, he had gotten it from from Esau and sold him the the, the birthright. Jacob uh, Isaac gave him the blessing, but God didn't. Now that he has reached maturity and he has learned to trust God, God is going to begin to distribute that blessing. To him, and God gives him the blessing and gives him a new name, Israel, one who prevails with God, indicating that he has uh, trusted God and that there is a new Jacob. And never again do we see, we see him fail, but we never see Jacob the chiseler, Jacob the uh, backstabber, Jacob the conniver again, which indicates that as you grow and mature spiritually, even somebody like Jacob has a character transformation. But there's also a family failure, and in chapter 33, we see a family failure with uh, Jacob. Because when he meets Esau, uh, Esau wants him to come with him to Edom, and Jacob just isn't quite ready to uh, trust him, and so he begins to compromise. He doesn't go all the way to Bethel. He only goes to Sukkoth. And he lives there for a while, and then from there he goes to Shechem. There is still a superficial uh, relationship with God. He builds an altar there, but it's at Shechem that he has the major uh, failure with the family uh, with Dinah. And this indicates another theme, that theme that goes back to why Rebekah wanted him out of the land, wanted him to go live uh, with the family so they, that he would not come under the influence of the Canaanites and assimilate their culture because that would destroy the family spiritually. But that's exactly what happens with Jacob's sons. He has not been successful in isolating them from the culture around them, and they're just as pagan as any of the Canaanites. And this starts to set the stage for why God has to take the the descendants of Abraham out of the land eventually to Egypt, which is where Genesis will end, in order to isolate them and protect them from the influences of paganism. And the principle there is that as believers, we have to isolate ourselves as much as possible from the influence of the cosmic system around us. And the only way we can ultimately do that is through protecting our soul with Bible doctrine. We can't go live in a monastery somewhere. You know, that's always been the solution that a number of people have tried over the years is, is I'll take the ascetic solution and I'll just go live, live in a mountaintop somewhere or live in a cave. Uh, I've seen caves where uh, monks live in isolation so they don't have to deal with the temptation of the world. And uh, you also have, like in the early church, my favorites were the pillar saints, like Simon Stylites, who spent seven years on top of a pillar because he was so holy, and people would come from miles around to sit and listen to him uh, teach wisdom. And you had a number of others. You had these other uh, monastics who would go out and live on grass and with the... uh, with the cows in the fields, and, and it's just kind of interesting to read about some of these lives. But this was ha- the glorification of spirituality in the early church when they got into legalism. But you can't take that option. You, we can't take ourselves out of the world. We're in the world. As Jesus prayed in John 17, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. So we have to learn to live in the midst of cosmic paganism, but without being influenced by it. Well, the family is clearly influenced by it. And in chapter 35, as we studied last time, Jacob finally returns to Bethel. Before he goes back, there has to be a cleansing. They have to put away all of the false gods. They have to separate themselves from the paganism that they've adopted, at least in in a superficial sense. And then he returns to Bethel and he builds an altar to God there and completes his vow. And then, as we saw last time, there's a wrapping up. Various details we 're told that deborah rebecca 's nurse dies, then Rachel gives birth to her last son, Benjamin, and she dies and then, in the midst of that, at Bethel, God reconfirms the covenant, so that gives us the overview and throughout this whole episode, the one thing that stands out is God is always faithful, despite the failures, the flaws, everything else God continue, consistently continues to work in the life of Jacob in order to bring him to maturity and bring to fruition the promises that God has made. So when we look at this, there are several key doctrines that stand out. First of all, blessing is based on grace. Blessing is not based on what Jacob did or who he was. It was based on grace, on who God was and what he decided to do in history that came years before Jacob was born. Blessing is always based on God's grace. It's not based on what we do or who we are. Second, grace is not based on human merit. Never, ever is it based on human merit. You don't get blessed because you pray. You don't get blessed because you read your Bible every day. You don't get blessed because uh, you give to the church. You don't get blessed because all of a sudden you decide you're going to witness to five people this week. Blessing of God is determined before anything else happens in our spiritual life. It's it's set aside for it. It's our potential, and it's distributed on the basis of our maturity. God doesn't begin to bless, truly bless Jacob, give him the blessing, until there's that maturity that's exhibited at Peniel. Now, before that, God had blessed him and prospered him, but not on the basis of who Jacob was, on the basis of the Abrahamic, uh, promise and the promise that God had made to Jacob at Bethel on his way out of town. We saw the transformation of Jacob to Israel, the cunning conniver to a prince with God, and that came after a period of time. Spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. But then the fourth thing we see is the increasing paganization of the descendants of Abraham. They just don't have this, the drive to have a relationship with God that Abraham had. It's fine to experience the blessing, but they don't come away being called the friend of God as God identified Abraham. But what wraps everything up here is divine faithfulness. That's what comes across in all these all these chapters. It's not a it's a major theme in Genesis, it's not the major theme of Genesis because the faithfulness that we see in Genesis 12 through 50 is all based on the divine covenant. So at the end, he goes down to Beersheba, and I thought I would give you, show you a couple of pictures of the archaeological remains at Beersheba. It's rather dry, and this is where he uh, finished. Uh, J- Jacob went down and they settled. Again, everything is based on that Abrahamic covenant. And throughout this section, we g- get a reminder of the covenant how many times do we have the abrahamic covenant reaffirmed Genesis 12:3 records God's promise to bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants the abrahamic covenant is confirmed to Abraham Isaac Jacob and their descendants and is repeated to them at least 20 times Twenty times God reaffirms that this is the land I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you this seed. I'm going to bless you. And just within the, the, the Isaac section, we see 26, 24, through 20, 24, and 25. Genesis 27, 28 to 29. Uh, Genesis 27, 38 to 40. Genesis 28, 1 through 4. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Genesis 31, 3. Genesis 31, 11-13, uh, Genesis thirty-two twenty-two to 32 Genesis 35, 9-15. So we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 affirmations of the Abrahamic covenant just in this one section. So it is clear that God is establishing this unconditional covenant with the descendants of Abraham. Now, we have one more thing to cover, and that is the Toledote in Genesis chapter 27. Now, I know some of you are probably taking bets as to how long it would take to go through Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 36 with the Toledotes of Esau. Now, this is the record or the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, that ought to be a red flag right away. He is assimilating to the Canaanites. He'd had three wives: Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite; Ahalabama, the daughter of Anah; and uh, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Bazemath, Ishmael's daughter. So we see a merger of Ishmael's line with Esau's line. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Bazimath bore Reuel and Ohalabama bore Jehosh, and Korah. And we could just get lost in the detail here and not learn a whole lot because the main, uh, the information about these individuals is lost in history. But it wasn't lost, or the significance of this wasn't lost to the Jews. To understand the significance of chapter 36, you have to put yourself in that mental framework of a Jew sitting outside the land ready to go into the land what's just happened you ha- as a as part of the conquest generation you've been going through the wilderness for the last 40 years while your parents died off because they wouldn't trust God and follow Joshua and Caleb in entering the land and in that process as you were coming to this point the jumping off point to go into the into the land and attack and defeat the Canaanites To get there, you had to take a rather circuitous route. Down here is Kadesh Barnea, down in the um, Sinai Peninsula. This was where the older generation had failed, and during the 40 years of wandering, they didn't really wander like they were lost. They were just in a holding pattern uh, out here in the desert. And over here on the area across uh, the Jordan. The Jordan flow, this is the Dead Sea up here to the north, and this is the uh, water that flows out of the Dead Sea down towards uh, the uh, the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, The west side, or the east side here, is the territory of Edom and Mount Seir. And they, look at the, if you follow the blue line, you see their, the route they had to take. They had to go all the way down to uh, almost to the Gulf of Aqaba and then circle around the southern border and come up the east side of Edom. They had to completely go around Edom. They never entered into Edom. And there was a reason for that because God had promised to bless Esau and his descendants as well and to protect them. And so they were not... Um, the object of holy war and Edom was actually is actually treated as a much closer relative to Israel than Moab and Ammon they did go into uh, battles with Moabites and Ammonites not uh, they didn't initiate them the Moabites and the Ammonites did but they had to circle around the uh the Edomites The Edomites had grown to a very powerful nation, and that is the focus of chapter 36, is the growth of the descendants of Esau and Edom. And there's just a couple of things that we should, that we should note in this section as we, uh, just skim over it. First of all, we have two Toledotes in Genesis chapter 36. There's one in verse 1. And there's another one in verse 9. So you have two sections in this chapter. One covers the first eight verses, which deals with Esau's family. And the second deals with verse 9 down through the end of the chapter, down through 43, which deals with the chieftains of Esau's line and their growth as they establish themselves politically and as a political power in the Middle East at that time. The point of these two sections is to show god 's blessing of even Esau and his descendants, because he had made a previous promise to Abraham that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. Let me back up a couple of verses genesis twenty seven thirty eight after Esau had been or after uh, Isaac had been duped, and Esau was tricked out of his blessing, Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling. Now, this isn't much of a blessing. This is sort of a backhanded blessing. There wasn't much left over. He, He got the dregs of the blessing. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth. There is prosperity promised there, and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live. There will be violence, and you'll have to defend your nation against those who, who want to take it from you. And you shall serve your brother. He is still the one that gets the primary blessing. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck, that eventually you will become, there will be a time period in Esau's History in the history of the nation, that they would be uh, superior to Israel. And that did take place uh, during the period of the divided uh, monarchy. Now, in Deuteronomy 23.7, as the Jews are uh, coming around the edge of the Edomite Empire and getting ready to go into the land, in Deuteronomy 23.7, God said, "...you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother." You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. The point we just want to focus on is you shall not abhor an Edomite. They were to recognize that they were family, they were relatives, they were blessed by God, and God was uh, behind the blessing to Esau. It was part of his fulfillment of the Abrahamic, uh, Abrahamic covenant. Some other things to note. First of all, in verses one through seven, as we are one through eight, as it develops his family, it's uh, made clear to us who Esau is in verse one. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And then you look down in verse eight. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now Mount Seir and the term Seir is a reference to the people who lived in this area prior to Esau moving into that area. You had Seir and the Horites. And the second part of this chapter, from verse 9 on, uh, describes the ascendancy of the Edomites in this area. And it lists the various descendants in verses 9 through 14. And uh, then, in starting in verse uh, down from from uh, excuse me from 10 down through 19, it develops the chief, basic chiefdoms that came from Esau's family and identifies who they were. And all of this is to show the Jews who are outside the land that Esau has grown. This was a very powerful nation. There's a lot going on because they didn't get to go through the middle of, of Edom to find out what was going on. So they had to... So God is revealing this to them, that they had grown to a very uh, powerful uh, nation. And then in verses 20 down through verse 30, it talks about those who were there prior to the Edomites, the sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land. And it lists them, and then what we see is the merger of the Horites with the Edomites, uh, the descendants of Esau, in order to establish the Edomite kingdom. And then in verses 31 to 39, there's a list of the Edomite kings and their uh, cities. And then at the very conclusion, we have the clans and the territorial possessions of the Edomites. The point of all of that is to show, again, God's faithfulness to his promise. And if God is faithful to his promise to not only uh, Jacob, but also to Esau, and if God is faithful in blessing them because of his promise to Abraham, then when you and I get caught in jams and we go through adversity and it looks like the world's going to end and everything is falling apart, then we can do the same kind of thing that Jeremiah is doing in Lamentation. We can grieve, we can sorrow over what has happened, but it doesn't end there. We don't stop in the depression. We don't stop and wallow in the grief and the self-pity but we are driven by that to focus on the consistent faithfulness of God in history. And so we go back and we have to teach ourselves and train ourselves to think through the Scripture and say, okay, where were there situations historically in the Old Testament where there's failure, where... Uh, people have uh, gone through divine discipline, or God has just taken them through difficult circumstances and adversity in order to teach them to trust Him and to follow Him. And we saw that with with Isaac, I mean with Jacob when he's out of the land for twenty years. With Laban, he's being outfoxed and outmaneuvered and uh, taken advantage of again and again by Laban. Yet God is the one who's using that to teach. Jacob about God's faithfulness and eventually God uh, fulfilled the promise that he had made uh, to Jacob and blessed him and brought him back to the land so this is a process how we take these stories are not just nice little stories they are not just interesting things about the founders of Israel but they're designed to teach us different uh, truths about God his person his character and his faithfulness now when we come back next time We're going to get into one of my favorite sections of Scripture, which is the next Toledo, the history of Jacob, which focuses on Joseph. And we'll begin Joseph with his dreams and his coat of many colors in chapter 37 next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness and that you are always faithful to your word and to your promises, and you are always faithful to take care of us and to watch over us because you have a goal to make us like Jesus Christ. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who works in us to produce spiritual maturity, and it's up to us to decide to implement the principles and to uh, trust in the promises of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.